came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 12th of April 2018. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today our feature interview is with Catherine Nugent, who is a PhD astronomy student who has just discovered an amazing runaway yellow supergiant star in the small Magellanic Cloud. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky. And then we'll have a quick news roundup. So now we cross 17 time zones to talk with Catherine in Seattle, Washington. Hello, Catherine. Hi. Today we are speaking with Catherine Nugent, who is a PhD astronomy student researching massive stars at the University of Washington in Seattle. She's a research associate at the Lowell Observatory in Arizona, discoverer of an amazing runaway star in the small Magellanic Cloud. She's a photographer, backpacker, an animal lover, pretty much anywhere and everywhere. So, Tell us about where you grew up, please, Catherine, and tell us how you became interested in science in the first place. And did you have dark skies in your backyard at home? Sure. I grew up in San Luis Obispo, California, and so it's around halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco on the coast. And the skies were pretty dark there, which was very nice. We were far away from kind of big cities and so able to see the night sky right on the ocean. So could go out to the ocean and kind of desolate area of California and see the night sky. It's pretty sappy, but I fell in love with astronomy when I was in elementary school. I went on a field trip to Yosemite and we went on a night hike. And I looked up at Orion and the Milky Way and just thought it was amazing. So really loved astronomy starting at a very young age. I got my first telescope when I was in middle school, an 8-inch Dobsonian, and really continued to look at the sky ever after that. Fantastic. So tell us a little about those early school days and your early ambitions. Did those ambitions change? Not really. I really always wanted to be an astronomer up until, I guess, now, (laughs) with a few little breaks in between in college. But certainly in my school days, I always wanted to be an astronomer. And I really worked hard in the math and sciences in high school because I knew that I wanted to go to college for astronomy. 
we did have a planetarium in my high school, which was really fortunate and really kind of random, <laughs> but yeah. that allowed us to have an astronomy class and able to kind of learn a lot more about the motions of the night sky and just different aspects of astronomy as a high school student that many other students didn't have, I guess, the privilege to have something like their high school. Excellent. So after your high school diploma, you went to Wellesley College in Massachusetts for your BA in computer science and astronomy. And that was a pretty prescient combination back in 2006. How did you find that transition from high school to college? It was a little rough in the sense of I went both from the West Coast to the East Coast, and also Wellesley is an all-women's college, so that was definitely a transition. But I really enjoyed Wellesley and all of my time there. I was able to focus on my interests. Obviously, in high school, you take a bunch of different classes, whereas in college, you can kind of dive deep into the ones that you're just interested in. So I was able to focus on the astronomy and the computer science and physics and math and all of those types of things. And I was also able to start research, which was really exciting because I had never done research in high school. And starting sophomore year, I was able to really get into a research project. It started off with asteroids. So I didn't start Massive Stars until a while later, but started with asteroids and really built up my interest in astronomy. The computer science part of it just kind of came along for the ride. I found my first computer science class to be really interesting and realized how helpful it would be for later on in life, especially if I wanted to continue in astronomy. And so that's kind of how that major came into be. That's fabulous. And then you took that a bit further. You did your first master's degree at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. for a master's in computer science. And about that time, you were also a cybersecurity consultant for government agencies with top level security clearance. So we'd better not ask you too much about <laughs> that. <laughs> now, we also know that your astronomy was far from being on the back burner because that's when you and Phil Massey were working on yellow supergiants in the Large Magellanic Cloud. Could you give us a brief outline of what yellow supergiants are and what a Magellanic Cloud is, please, Catherine? Definitely. So a yellow supergiant is an evolved massive star. And so the evolved part means that it's in the process of dying. It's come off the main sequence and it's basically just dying and about to end its life. It's lived its life as a normal star. And then the massive part means that it's more than eight solar masses. Yep. And so this yellow supergiant that I did my research on is around nine solar masses. So it's kind of at the bottom part of a massive star, but still considered massive. Yellow supergiants in general have worn temperatures that aren't really too different from that of the sun's. And so they can be as different as around like 2000 Kelvin or less, which is really small in an astronomical sense, but they have a much larger radius. And so the star that I'm interested in has a radii that's 200 times the radii of the sun. <laughs> and so much, much larger. <laughs> yep. And so the one that I'm looking at and the ones that I've looked at before are in the small Magellanic cloud. So there are two Magellanic clouds, the large and the small. They're both visible in the southern hemisphere. You can't see them up in the northern hemisphere, but they're very beautiful. 
They really do look like little clouds in the sky. They're little dwarf galaxies that are very close to the Milky Way, around 200,000 light years away. And again, it sounds like a big number, but it's actually very, very close and considering kind of galactic time frames, or not time frames, but spatial regions. (laughs) Very good. So then you went on to do your second master's degree in applied physics with an emphasis on astronomy. Tell us about that second master's. Sure. So I did all of, as you said, all of this research doing cybersecurity stuff and then working kind of at Lowell Observatory remotely on the side and realized that I just missed the astronomy so much. So that's what kind of motivated this idea to go back and get a second master's. So I actually went to Northern Arizona University with the intent of studying asteroids and doing planetary sciences, since that's what NAU was kind of known for. But after just a few months, I realized I really missed the massive stars. And so I went back to working with Phil Massey, my advisor at Lowell Observatory, and started working on a different type of evolved massive star, a wolf array star. Excellent. So that great thirst for knowledge is coming very evident here, Catherine. And perhaps even a skill for making unexpected discoveries, because you found your first example of a rare wolf array star, Can you tell us about WR stars and this rare discovery that you made? Yeah, so Wolfram stars are even more evolved massive stars than yellow supergiants. And they're about to explode as supernova. So they're right at the end of their life, about to explode and create a neutron star. So they've burnt through their hydrogen supplies and they've moved on to burning heavier elements like helium, nitrogen and carbon. They're much, much hotter than yellow supergiants, um, and thus the sun. Their temperatures are as high as around 100,000 degrees Kelvin, so much hotter. So a few years ago, I found a special type of wolf ray star that has a strange spectrum. It has components of both a wolf ray star and of a less evolved O star. So O stars are main sequence stars. They're even less evolved than yellow supergiants. And they have a spectrum that's much different from that of a wolf array star. And so having these two components together in a single spectrum makes them seem like they're a binary star. But the stars are simply too faint to be binaries. Basically, if you have a bright wolf array star and a bright O star, if you put them together, you're not going to get a dim star. So it can't be a binary star. So these are basically single stars with strange spectra. And so the exciting part is that we found 10 of them. So they're not some one-off discovery. And we're still in the process of figuring them out. That was actually part of my master's thesis at the Northern Arizona University. So we're still kind of working on that. So stay tuned in terms of that (laughs) research. (laughs) Okay, look, before we talk about your runaway star, let's talk about your candidature for your PhD. Is that happening now? Where is it? And what will your PhD thesis be all about? Sure. So it is right now. I just moved to Seattle a few months ago, and I'm getting my PhD at the University of Washington, and I'm working with Dr. Emily Levesque. And my area of research is, again, evolved massive stars, and again, a different type of evolved massive star. This time I'm looking at red supergiants, and I'm mostly focused on their binary properties and how their spectra and photometry change 
if they're in a binary system with another star. So I'm looking at both their observed spectra, I'm creating kind of synthetic spectra to model their stars. I'm looking at different types of red supergiants and if they're in companions with blue supergiants and blue dwarfs and yellow supergiants and just bunches of different stars and just trying to determine how you would be able to tell from a spectroscopic point of view if they're in a binary system. Fantastic. I can tell you're having a lot of fun already. Yeah. So let's talk now about your latest paper and this runaway star discovery. You've got a healthy obsession with the Magellanic Clouds and your research involves your expertise in using some magnificent optical instruments. Can you give us a brief primer on radial velocity and how you measure the velocity of stars? Then tell us about your latest paper as first author that's just been accepted by the Astronomical Journal and how such a massive star could move the way it's moving. Definitely. So I've done a lot with the Magellanic Clouds, as you said. I began this project by looking at yellow and red supergiants in the Magellanic Clouds. And so one thing that's very difficult about this is that there's quite a bit of foreground contamination of yellow supergiants from yellow dwarfs in our own galaxy. So to separate the foreground dwarfs from the Magellanic Cloud yellow supergiants, you need to look at their radial velocities. Yep. So this is done by taking spectra of the stars and the stars have various spectral lines that shift based on their radial velocities, kind of like the Doppler effect. Yep. So the SMC is moving at a velocity of around 160 kilometers per second. So if the spectral lines are shifted such that the star is moving at a radial velocity of 160 kilometers per second, the star is probably located in the small Magellanic Cloud. Yep. And so the star we found is moving at a radial velocity of around 300 kilometers per second. So it's really speeding through the small Magellanic Cloud. And the current thought is that it was born in a binary system, but the other star exploded as a supernova and flung it out into outer space. And so it's going to continue speeding through the small Magellanic Cloud until it itself goes supernova. And then the resulting neutron star will eventually escape the gravitational pull of the small Magellanic Cloud since it's moving so fast and it'll just keep going out into space. Fantastic. That's a wonderful discovery and great science. Congratulations to you and your team. You must be thrilled with that. Yeah, thanks. It's definitely been fun, and it's been fun working alongside the people that I've done research with, including my advisor, Phil Massey, and then we have Brian Skiff, who's also at Lowell Observatory, and Nydia Morel, who's down in Chile, and Cyril Georgi, who's in Geneva. And so it's really also been an international effort. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Okay, so as well as being an astronomer, a data scientist and a coder in a heap of languages, you also love animals, backpacking and photography. Have you managed to combine all three of your loves? <laughs> kind of. I've managed to combine parts of them at least. In terms of the astronomy and data science, I certainly have a lot of data to deal with, especially now for my PhD. So it makes the data science aspect kind of a natural companion. And I'm lucky enough that at the University of Washington, I'm participating in a special data science program that allows me to spend more time on research and focusing on the data science aspect. 
In terms of the animals backpacking and photography, I've been really lucky enough to live in beautiful places in Colorado, in Flagstaff, Arizona, and now in Seattle, Washington. And so they let me hike around with my corgi and take beautiful pictures and just really enjoy everything that my surroundings has to offer. Fantastic. What a wonderful journey. Can you tell us what else we need to keep an eye out for, please? Apart from your PhD, what's next for you? Yeah, I'm going to continue researching the strange wolf array stars. One thing that's been really exciting is that we've only found it in the Large Magellanic Cloud at this point. And so the big question is, why haven't we found it anywhere else? We know a lot of wolf ray stars that exist in other galaxies, in M31, M33, in our Milky Way, but we've never seen one there. And so we're trying to try and figure out if they're just very faint, and so we haven't seen them because they're so faint, or because they can't form there because of some physical mechanism. So really researching that and trying to figure out where they come from and what they're going to turn into. Fantastic. What a quest. Now, the microphone is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favorite rant or rave, Catherine, about the challenges that we face in science, in education, in equity, in outreach, or animal welfare, our quest for knowledge or space. The microphone's all yours. Sure. So I guess a big thing that I'm very passionate about is Women for Science. I'm luckily currently in a place at the University of Washington where there's a good ratio of men to women, both in terms of the students and also the faculty. But at previous institutions, this hasn't been the case. In particular, Northern Arizona University was pretty embarrassing with only a few women faculty members and a few women students. And so Obviously, don't get me started on the government and computer science days. It was really awful. When I started at George Washington University, I was in a class of 50 and there were only two women. And so that was quite painful. Um, But I did have the great opportunity of going to an all-women's college, Wellesley, and learning both computer science and astronomy without really any fear of non-equity. However, this obviously can't be the case for all science and engineering inclined women. And I just hope the change can be, I guess, propagated up from lower levels of education, since clearly based on my experience, the change does really need to come. Excellent. Thank you so much. Now, right now, we warmly invite our listeners to follow at Catherine Nugent on Twitter and follow her fabulous journey and many more exciting discoveries. Thank you so much, Catherine Nugent, runaway legend. (laughs) And thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to interview me. Now we cross over to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week? A very busy week this week coming up. In the morning sky, those of you who have been following Mars and Saturn would have seen them uh, getting closer and closer together. Now they're drawing further and further apart, and Mars is heading towards the globular cluster M22. Saturn is very close. It's now going to be pulling away from it for the rest of the week. So you'll see the pair beginning to drift away 
um, still it's, it's still uh, they're still together in binoculars, but by the end of this week they'll be too far away to be in the same binocular field. You can still sweep up from Mars to Saturn in, a, in that area around there for lots of uh, beautiful deep sky objects as Mars continues to trundle away from Saturn. Now that the most spectacular encounter between Mars and Saturn is uh, over. Mars and Saturn are now visible in the late evening sky. So if you're looking around between about 11 o'clock and midnight, you'll be able to see, around about 11 o'clock, you'll be able to see um, Saturn rising. And around about midnight, you'll be able to see Mars rising. So the pair are now turning up in the late evening, although they're still better in the early morning when they're both higher above the horizon if you want to look at them in telescopes. And we've been getting some very good amateur images of Mars and Saturn from Australia at the moment, so it's been looking very good. Jupiter, of course, is now rising shortly after the astronomical twilight, so when the, the sky is quite dark, Jupiter is up on the horizon, and by mid-evening it's quite high above the horizon and is now a very good telescopic object in the evening with lots of nice looming action happening and a few transits occurring in the next couple of weeks. So it's going to be quite fun to be watching Jupiter. As the week goes on, you'll have the joy of seeing Jupiter, Mars and Saturn dominating the late evening sky. But what about early evening, do you say? Those of you who have been watching Venus will be noticing it climbing higher and higher into the evening sky. It's now very easy to see about half an hour after sunset and if you've got a flat level horizon, uh, you should be able to see it until nearly an hour after sunset. And it's now very bright and very easy to see. On the 19th and the 18th of April, you'll see the thin crescent moon very close to Saturn. It's closest on the 18th, but on the 19th, you'll have the thin crescent moon just below the bright star Olivaron in the head of Taurus the Bull in the Pleiades cluster. And that paired with Venus below it will look really uh, quite beautiful. So in the evening sky, we've got four of the bright planets bracing us, especially the two of them uh, in the heart of Sagittarius, one of the most interesting both binocular and telescopic areas. It'll be a, a very nice evenings for some time. In the late morning sky, shortly before sunrise, Mercury is joining us. Now, Mercury, for us in the Southern Hemisphere, this is the best time to see Mercury in the morning uh, from now until the uh, beginning of next month. For those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, Mercury is not so exciting. It's not quite as, uh, as high above the horizon as it will be in the Southern Hemisphere. But on the 14th and 15th, you'll find the thin crescent moon very close to Mercury. On the 14th, it'll be just above uh, Mercury. On the 15th, just below if you're looking at half an hour uh, for sunrises. So Mercury will be quite high above the horizon at that time and it will continue to get higher. And so uh, if you use the moon to uh, orientate yourself, seeing Mercury in the morning is uh, very easy. Of course, you do have to get up uh, half an hour before sunrise in order to see this. So uh, you might find getting out of bed a little bit too hard. But uh, this is a very good time to see Mercury and uh, those dates will, will have this beautiful pairing of uh, Mercury and the uh, in crescent moon. So that's basically the planetary action for this coming week. Very good, Ian. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? 
One thing that did turn up which might be of interest is the big flare of Proxima Centauri. Remember that the closest uh, stars to the solar system, apart from our own sun, is the triplet of Alpha Centauri, Beta Centauri, and Proxima Centauri. Now, Proxima Centauri, people have been very excited because they found a, uh, a planet around Proxima Centauri, which is potentially in the habitable zone of Proxima Centauri. But white dwarf stars are known for giving off really serious solar flares. And the, and the it's just let, let off a really amazing solar flare, uh, one that was in fact so bright that it was potentially visible to the unaided eye, although from uh, our point of view it would have been very difficult to see, uh, almost drowned out in the glare of Alpha and Beta Centauri itself. So it was an enormously bright flare. But what it means that if there was any potential life or any life on Proxima Centauri B, it would be having a pretty hard time. There was enough radiation to completely destroy the ozone layer and uh, sleep down uh, uh, particles into the uh, atmosphere, which would make life somewhat difficult for any any organism. In fact, there was enough ultraviolet uh, radiation that could potentially sterilise anything in the hemisphere Facing the sun for the duration, uh, the, the sun, the prophetic for the duration of the flare. This is interesting because we think about potential habitable worlds. We know that most of the planets we find uh, that are inhabitable zones and, and that are of a sort of Earth size, many of these are being found in the habitable zone, the potential habitable zones of. Dwarf stars, such as, uh, such as red dwarf stars. Yep. But the problem with red dwarf stars is they tend to have much stronger uh, solar flares than G-class stars, such as our, ourselves. So uh, life there has to contend with uh, potential uh, sterilising uh, bursts of radiation from their stars occurring uh, more frequently than any potential um, outbursts on our sun. So, so when we think about a habitable zone, uh, in astronomers talk of, of habitable zones in terms of whether or not uh, a planet is orbiting in an area where it could potentially have liquid water on it, uh, and that the temp- and so that the it's not so hot that the water will have evaporated off or boiled off, like Venus, not so cold that it would be an ice world. But uh, just being warm enough to have liquid water on your surface is no guarantee that it, the zone will be friendly for life. There are other factors, um, include, uh, not limited to uh, bombardment from uh, the local asteroid or cometary belt, and potentially uh, planet sterilising flares if you happen to be around a red dwarf star. So when we're thinking of life around other planets, we have to think of a lot of other factors, um, and people uh, find that the term... Um, habitable zone can be quite misleading because it doesn't take into account all these other factors like planet sterilising uh, solar flares. So it's, that's something to to, uh, to think about. That news about the exoplanet being sterilised by a flare, that's still not going to stop the mainstream media from talking about aliens. No, it won't. But then again, what would stop them? As scientists, we can, in a sense, talk to bacteria by finding out how they evolved, how, what's their genetic makeup. So potentially we could learn a lot about finding alien bacteria on an, on an exoplanet. 
And cockroaches, Ian. And cock. Yes, let's not forget the red roaches. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Thank you very much uh, for having me on and hopefully brightening up your sky with some uh, moons and planets uh, close together. So uh, we'll uh, catch you again uh, uh, at the next interview and we'll have lots more interesting things to see in the sky. Thanks, Ian. No worries. And here's our news roundup for April 10, 2018. First up from ICRA.org. The SKA precursor telescope, the MWA, the Murchison Widefield Array in outback Western Australia, has been used to listen to a mysterious cigar-shaped object that entered our solar system late last year. The unusual object, known as our Muamua, came from another solar system, prompting speculation it could be an alien spacecraft. However, astronomers went back through observations from Murchison Widefield Array, the MWA, to check for radio transmissions coming from the object between the frequencies of 72 and 102 megahertz, similar to the frequency range in which FM radio is broadcast. While they did not find any signs of intelligent life, the research helped expand the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI, from distant stars to objects closer to home. When our Muamua was first discovered, astronomers thought it was a comet or an asteroid from within the solar system, but after studying its orbit and discovering its long cylindrical shape, they realised our Muamua was neither and had come from interstellar space. Telescopes around the world trained their gaze on the mysterious visitor in an effort to learn as much as possible before it headed back out of the solar system, becoming too faint to observe in detail. John Curtin Distinguished Professor Stephen Tingay from the Curtin University Node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA, said the MWA team did not initially set out to find our Muamua. We didn't set out to observe this object with the MWA, but because we can see such a large fraction of a sky at once, when something like this happens, we're able to go back through the data and analyse it after the fact, Professor Tingay said. If advanced civilizations do exist elsewhere in our galaxy, we can speculate that they might develop the capability to launch spacecraft over interstellar distances, and that these spacecraft may use radio waves to communicate. While the possibility of this is extremely low, possibly even zero, as scientists, it's important that we avoid complacency and examine observations and evidence without bias. The MWA is located in Western Australia's remote Murchison area, one of the most radio-quiet areas on the planet, and far from human activity and radio interference caused by technology. It is made up of thousands of antennas attached to hundreds of tiles 
that dot the ancient landscape, relentlessly observing the heavens day after day, night after night, and generating exobytes of data. Professor Tingay said the research team was able to look back through all of MWA's observations from November, December and early January when our Muamua was between 95 million and 590 million kilometres from Earth. We found nothing. But as the first object of its class to be discovered, our Muamua has given us an interesting opportunity to expand the search for extraterrestrial intelligence from traditional targets such as stars and galaxies and exoplanets to objects that are much closer to Earth. This also allows for searches for transmitters that are many orders of magnitude less powerful than those that would be detectable from a planet orbiting even the most nearby of stars. Our Muamua was first discovered by the PanStars project at the University of Hawaii in October. Its name loosely means a messenger that reaches out from the distant past in Hawaiian and is the first known interstellar object to pass through our solar system. Combining observations from a host of telescopes, scientists have determined that our Muamua is most likely a cometary fragment that has lost much of its surface water because it was bombarded by cosmic rays on its long journey through interstellar space. Researchers have now suggested there could be more than 46 million similar interstellar objects crossing the solar system every year. While most of these objects are too far away to study with current technologies, future telescopes such as the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA, will enable scientists to understand more about these interstellar interlopers. So once the SKA is online, we'll be able to look at a large numbers of objects and partially balance out the low probability of positive detection. That was from ikra.org, and our next report is from spacetelescope.org. Hubble uses cosmic lens to discover most distant star ever observed. Astronomers using the NASA ESA Hubble Space Telescope have found the most distant star ever discovered. The hot blue star existed only 4.4 billion years after the Big Bang. That makes it about... 9 billion years old. This discovery provides new insight into the formation and evolution of stars in the early universe, the constituents of galaxy clusters, and also on the nature of dark matter. The international team, led by Patrick Kelly from the University of Minnesota, Jose Diago from the Instituto de Física de Cantabria, Spain, and Stephen Rodney from the University of South Carolina discovered the distant star in the galaxy cluster Max 1149-2223. The observations with Hubble were actually performed in order to detect and follow the latest appearance of the gravitationally lensed supernova explosion nicknamed Refstal. 
when an unexpected point source brightened in the same galaxy that hosted the supernova. Like the Refstal supernova explosion, the light of this distant star got magnified, making it possible for Hubble to see it, says Patrick Kelly. This star is at least a 100 times further away than the next individual star we can study, except for supernova explosions. The observed light from the newly discovered star, called Lens Star 1, LS1, was emitted when the universe was only about 30% of its current age. The detection of the star through Hubble was only possible because the light from the star was magnified 2,000 times using two different events. The star became bright enough to be visible for Hubble thanks to a process called gravitational lensing, explains Jose Diago. The light from LS1 was magnified not only by the huge total mass of the galaxy cluster, but also by another compact object about three times the mass of the Sun within the galaxy cluster itself. An additional effect known as gravitational microlensing. With more research and the arrival of new, more powerful telescopes like the NASA ESA CSA James Webb Space Telescope, the astronomers suggest that with microlensing it will be possible to study the evolution of the earliest stars in the universe in greater detail than ever expected. And that combined with SKA data means we have the possibility now of travelling back to within a very short time after the Big Bang. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave.